Welcome to the second in a two-part series with Dr. Jose Rodriguez. Our last episode ended with Dr. Rodriguez discussing how diversity and inclusion is accounted for in the accreditation process. We will pick up right where we left off. Enjoy. How would you define your role as Associate Vice President for Health Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion? Great point. So I feel like my job is to help create the structures and the policies and the accountability mechanisms to create change. So when I say structures, let's talk about positions, right? Mm-hmm. We have a medical school that has a associate, an associate dean for health equity, diversity, and inclusion. Okay, that's great. That's one person. We need more. Mm-hmm. So that person now has an assistant dean for health equity, diversity, and inclusion. But they also need more staff members to work in that office. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a structural thing that's just about the getting your hands dirty in the work. Mm-hmm. But at the other level, that highest executive level of decision-making at the School of Medicine needs to have the diversity deans at that table. Mm -hmm. That hasn't happened yet. However, there are changes that are afoot. And so the decision-making body of the School of Medicine is called the School of Medicine Executive Committee. Okay. And that body has all of the chairs and some, and some of the associate vice presidents and some of the chief financial officers, chief marketing officers, those right. kind of things. Are you on that? Yes. Okay, that's good. I'm not a voting member, but I'm on it, which is an interesting phenomenon. At the medical school education level, where Dr. Samuelson really is, is in charge of that, mm-hmm. both of the diversity deans are are on that decision-making body. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the structural changes that we have to have. And when it comes to health sciences, there's a school of medicine, which is by far the largest faculty, but really the MD program is fairly small with 500 students. Let's see by some miracle, we get to 200 students a year. Great. That makes it 800 students. Mm-hmm. The College of Health has 5,000 students. And so that's part of the AVP's role as well, is to make sure that the diverse equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts that are going on at the health system level are actually happening at all of the schools, not just the MD program or the programs that are not the MD program at the School of Medicine. Gotcha. And, And we provide supervisory and support to the health equity uh diversity and inclusion office at the School of Medicine, who I must say are doing a bang up job because they, the, uh, the work that they have to do is right now essentially beyond what their FTTL, FTE allows and they're still doing it. Yeah, so I went to um, medical school in Montreal, um, Canada, and- I don't remember my medical school classes being very diverse, even though the city of Montreal is quite diverse. Um, is this mainly a U.S. issue, or is it? If you look internationally, are we worse or better than any you know Europe or Canada? Do you know that by any chance? 
So what a great question. The United States has been talking about having more diversity in medical school for some time, and they've been working on it. But I'll say that in other countries, I'll, I'll take Ecuador, for example. In Ecuador, there are like six private medical schools. And those six private medical schools charge tuition that looks just like what the University of Utah charges for out of state. Mm -hmm. In a place where the monthly minimum wage is $400 a month. Okay. So for the most part, the medical schools are only for the wealthy. Right. However, the public schools also have medical schools and those are for people who can get in by passing the test. Mm -hmm. And so if you come from a family that has enough wealth for you not to be working in school, then of course, your chances of getting into those public medical schools are much harder, are, are much better. Right. And it turns out that they are far more competitive to get into the public medical schools than the private ones because the public ones are free. Right. right. And so essentially what you end up with in Ecuador is a high concentration of people from the same classes that Abraham Flexner recommend that we select from. Mm -hmm. And this, is, this happens in other places as well, even in places where the majority of the students are black. Think about places like Haiti, mm -hmm. think about places like Nigeria, mm -hmm. same exact thing. In so, terms of the socioeconomic background of the students? We really do select from the, from the highest echelons of society everywhere in the world. Right. I, I think it might be a little different in Europe now, mm -hmm. only because of how they pay for medicine. Right. right. Because, you know, when you graduate as a family doc, you make 1,500 euros a month, which doesn't sound like a lot of money to me. Right. And, and that's different. Right, for sure. Um, one other thing I think about with diversity, like I said before, is gender. Um, and now, you know, slightly more than half of all medical students are female. I think 2019 was the year that that switched, although I'd been pushing at 50% for a while. Yet the professor track, so for those of you that don't know, in academic medicine and academics in general goes from instructor to assistant professor, to associate professor to full professor being the highest if you're like yourself, Dr. Rodriguez, a professor of medicine. In the United States, 66% of professors, full professors are male while 34% are female. I feel like it should be better with the number of years that there's been a lot of females in medicine. Well, women in medicine, you know, like I said, half of my class, we're talking 30 years ago were, were women. And uh, you might know Dr. Hobson Rohr. Yeah. We went to school together. Oh, I didn't know you guys were at the same time. She, she was a fourth year when I was a first year. Okay. And her class was half women. Okay. So we've had the ability to change this for decades. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's not like a new thing. So no, it's not. That's equally depressing. <laughs> well, and I think you're kind when you say it's depressing. What it is is inconscionable. It's, mm -hmm. There is no excuse for it. And think about the fields that both of us are in. Right. You're in pediatrics, I'm in family medicine. Both of them are majority women fields and have been for decades. Yet, 
if you look at leadership in those fields, there are still the great majority of the chairs are men. I think we talk a good game, but I think we have to do some kind of hard decisions. And so it has to do with privilege, mm -hmm. right? I'm male, that's my identification, all right? That imbues me with privilege. And so my job with having that privilege is to actually change it so that people who are not male have the same privilege. And sometimes that's easy and sometimes that's hard. Yeah. But um, I, I think about, so the other day I was invited to do an editorial for the journal of women's health, which I thought was fabulous, right? And then you realized you're not a woman, maybe a woman should write this. And then I said, oh, we should definitely have the women who I work with in my faculty development course write this. And so we did. And so that's what it is. It's about giving privilege. And they wrote a fabulous article about abolishing the minority women tax. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I think that it's important to talk about women. Well, we have to make sure that when we talk about women, that it's an, an inclusive term. Mm -hmm. right? Because I think that Black women are left out of that conversation. Mm -hmm. and, Latinx, and Latinas are as well. And so how do we make that more inclusive and make that something that we actually work to change? So that's my job. My job is a change agent. My job is to make room. My job is to make space. My job is also to talk for the people who aren't in the room and right. not to say, oh, I'm gonna talk for all black people because there's no black people here, right. but to say, I recognize that there are no black people here. So we need to have people in this conversation and then to stay and look for it. Yeah. I and even it, feel like I do that with my, so as you said, I'm a pediatrician and do you know, our clinic is really diverse. I have these female, you know, high school students, families are from Somalia or Iraq. And I was like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Like become a doctor, you should take my job. We need people that look like you who come from your background to take care of folks. I, you know, I feel bad that in our office, other than the Spanish clinic, everyone's pretty much white, almost taking care of all of our patients of color. It's, I wish it weren't quite that way. But thank goodness you're there. And I'm grateful for you because it's not so much that you have to be from the same ethnic group as your patient, although that helps. Mm -hmm. It is that you gotta have the right attitude and be able to go the extra mile and that's what you guys do. And so I don't wanna ever minimize your contribution here. Right. Um, you know, the other day a paper came out just saying that how black women who have black doctors taking care of them during their pregnancy, the infant mortality rate goes down by 50%. I saw that. That's. I mean, isn't that isn't that an unbelievable thing? Yeah. Now, all they looked at was race, ethnicity. So, is there other stuff? I think there is. Right. But it also, you know, it comes down to some other things. When I think about what the kind of stuff that I do, I I got to be able to sit in a room and be able to look at that patient and say, "My goodness, she could be my grandmother." Mm -hmm. Okay. That changes how I act, what I do, and how I think. Right. And this is the kind of thing that a lot of our providers do at Redwood, all right? But it's learned behavior for a lot of people. 
And so I think one, once it becomes automatic behavior, it'll be better. But the imperative right now is to get more people who look like our patients, especially, I mean, our Somali patients. Right. Good heavens, what would, it be, what would it be like to have a Somali provider working with us? Oh that, my gosh. That'd be amazing. It would change how we did our job. Right, yeah, for sure. So a lot of the stuff we've talked about is fairly depressing and kind of negative. Are there any positives that you see or things that you see changing? I mean, even your position, did your position exist before you? My position is pretty old. Okay. It's more than 15 years old. And I have this whole list of predecessors in this position. The most recent one was Dr. Ana Maria Lopez who left in 2018. Okay. But before that, it was Dr. Uh, Evelyn Gopez. And before that, it was Dr. Uh, Rod Junkins. And it was another one who was Dr. Davis. I don't know the first name. And I don't know if Dr. I don't know Dr. Junkins' first name either. So please don't quote me on that. Okay. There's, a, there's a whole list of them. Uh-huh. And one of the things that was happening before is that there was a, an associate vice president office, a school of medicine office, and those two weren't on the same page, mm-hmm. all right? And so that's the other job is coordinating this effort. And so making sure that we can do it both at the School of Medicine and at the other schools. So for the first time, this College of Nursing is recruiting for an Associate Dean of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. The College of Health is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. The School of Dentistry has somebody with that assignment, but I think we're gonna have to get somebody who has that title. And then the only one that's left is the College of Pharmacy. So once we have deans doing that, it ensures that we have a voice at the highest levels of college leadership to, to advance the ideas and advance the principles and advance the science of diversity. Mm-hmm. Because it is science. It's not, you know, it's not just, you know, looking at numbers and saying, let's make it look like the population. Boy, that'd be easy because if we have four black students and we only have 1% of the state is black student is black people, then we're done. <laughs> That's not how it works. Right. We pull from a national pool. We got to look like the applicants, not, not just our state. Right. And the applicant pool is much higher than 1% or the 4% that we have now. Mm-hmm. And so We'll we'll see how this goes. I'm optimistic because of three things. One of them is that there's consciousness about this. Equity, diversity, and inclusion is no longer seen as the exclusive purview of people of color. Right. And I'll tell you that two years ago, I really felt like people thought I was the only one who had to do this job. Mm-hmm. So things are changing rapidly there. So that's a, a cause for optimism. The second a cause for optimism is that we have leadership that are willing to pay the political price to make things happen differently. So mm-hmm. one of them is to have that assistant dean in the School of Medicine. The other one is to have these other deans at the other at the College of Health and the College of Nursing. There's also going to be a, a an assistant, not even an assistant, it's more like an assistant vice president who's gonna be a senior director in my office, Mm. who's gonna be a faculty member, that that one is already out. We've also uh, recruited a senior director for equity, diversity, and inclusion at the hospital. Now that's a huge, huge deal 
when you think about the hospital has almost 14,000 employees and it has the highest number of black and Latinx employees of any unit in probably the state. Right. All right. And so now, and that person is going to set, is going to sit in the ops council. All right. At the hospital. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be different in, uh, in health sciences. Again, the people that are getting named to these positions are going to be sitting. Some of them will sit with me, right? I don't get, I can't be everywhere, but when I go to meetings, the other, the senior director will go with me mm -hmm. because there's another principle here. And that is if there's only one voice, what that ends up to be tokenizing and it hurts. Right, right. Right, and so what we need to do is to create opportunities for multiple voices. And until now, there's the political will to make it happen. Mm -hmm. If we look at the School of Medicine, for example, we have 22 chairs and many of them have already named vice chairs for equity, diversity, and inclusion. And those vice chairs will work with Dr. Kimiyu, who is the you know, assistant dean for actually faculty equity diversity, mm -hmm. and with my office and with Dr. Cariello to actually implement this work at the department level. Some departments have vice chairs. My department has named, a, uh, has named two associate chairs. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of people at the university working on this. So that's, that's great. There is. There's a lot of people in the university working on it, but the way we're working on it is different than before. Before, I think we were just trying to do the work. Mm -hmm. Now what we're doing is trying to help the people who are in charge of this do the work. So mm -hmm. I'm not a residency program director, all right? But Dr. Kim Yu and Dr. Cariello can work with the residency program directors to ensure that the things that need to happen to increase the diversity of their residency class happen. One of the things we learned, here's, here's an easy thing. I could talk to you forever, Dr. Whittemore, uh, is that every residency program interviews 10, pers 10 people for every seat. Okay. So family medicine interviews 100 people for 10 seats. Mm -hmm. Internal medicine interviews almost 400 people for 40 seats. Mm -hmm. Pediatrics is the same way. Ophthalmology inter interviews 40 people for four seats. Dermatology interviews 40 people, right? So the issue is if you want to increase your diversity in the residencies, you need to do the same thing for that underrepresented medicine category. Mm -hmm. So if you expect, if you want to be able to recruit one underrepresented in medicine resident, you need to interview 10. Mm -hmm. If you want to recruit four, then you got to interview 40. And that knowledge is new knowledge. We didn't know this until this year. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. That's news to me. Yeah. But it is interesting, you know, most people end up practicing where they do their residency. So As, yeah. have faculty be diverse. It's good to have residents who are diverse and then medical students and down the line. Yeah. So we're working on it at, at all fronts and we're seeing change mm -hmm. in transformation in the dermatology program, a program that hadn't had a single resident of color three years ago and now has, I think, two black residents and a Latinx resident. So it's 30%. Mm -hmm. 
Dermatology is a whole new thing to talk, another subject to talk about. And the fact that all my dermatology books are filled with white people with their rashes. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, <laughs> there is that. And I think you should know that the dermatology department has been working with the curriculum committee to change all the slide sets for dermatology that are presented to the med students. That have representation for multiple skin tones. Yeah, because it does sometimes make it challenging, even as a physician, when I'm you know, seeing patients of different skin tones to say, well, I don't know what it exactly looks like here. Um, lastly, I like the quote that you have at the bottom of your email. So I wanted to say it and see where it's from, if you made it up or nothing about us without us. What is, where does that come from? So I saw somebody have it as their Zoom background. Oh, really? <laughs> oh my gosh, I got to look this up. It's an old Latin saying. Okay. That was, that was, it comes from the Roman Empire, not known for their inclusivity or their kindness or anything. Right. right? So, and no offense to those of us who might be related to the Romans, but still, they weren't good people. Right, right, right. <laughs> But that's what it comes, it comes back to. And it, it's about, and the way the, the full quote that I saw was, nothing about us without us is for us. All right. Now, I like that is for us stuff as well, but I couldn't, I didn't feel like making people pissed off. <laughs> you know, if you talk about me without me being in the room, then you're a bad person. So uh, I think that, what it means is that if we're going to be making decisions for this diverse population that we serve, we need to have representation from it. That's just how it is. And that rep representation has to come either through the faculty line, through the patient line, through the staff line, but we need to do it. Mm -hmm. Because if it's about us, without us, it really isn't for us. For sure. And there's stuff that communities need that I don't know. I mean, I don't speak Somali. Right. And there's stuff that they need that I don't know about well enough to talk intelligently. Mm -hmm. But I do know people who are from that community who can do it. Right. And then how do I get their voice in front of the people who make decisions? And that's where our job is. Right. Anything else that you think I should know? I know you could talk about this for hours. Well, I think there's that we should look at what we're doing and be happy that we're changing so quickly, mm -hmm. right? So like the, the second year class of medical students has six Latinx students and the first year class has nine, mm -hmm. all right? That's a third more. Mm -hmm. That's a huge amount, right? Mm -hmm. The second year class had one black student. Now there's three, that's a 300% increase. Right, and so that's the clear evidence that we're moving in the right direction. And we need to continue moving in that right direction. And I think that there's actually appetite for it. And so our offices are designed not to do this work exclusively, but right. to work with all the other offices. Root, I think is a great example of a place where we can have collaboration and cross-pollination to make sure that we're doing the work together. Because, you know, having it reside in one place is good for coordination, but it is not good for getting the work done. 
right. has to exist in all of our psyches. And I think it does exist in all of our psyches. And I think people are willing to pay the capital to actually make it happen. I, I am actually optimistic about what we're gonna see in, in residencies. Mm -hmm. I think it's gonna be very different this year. Did you, is there anything you can point to that's responsible for the increase and in those numbers over those last couple of years of the medical students? Oh, I think it's intentional. I right. think it's Dr. Chan and his team who've seen this as an area of improvement. The more of the holistic review process. I think holistic review process is part of it. I think there is some money. I don't think there's a lot of money there. And I think once there's money, there's, that's going to change drastically. Right. Um, I think that the biggest thing is that we are actually interested in recruiting for diversity mm -hmm. instead of looking for the reasons why, you know, so there's two ways to do this, right? We can recruit for diversity or we can explain why we don't have it, mm -hmm. right? And I think what, is, what has happened is a general recognition is that a class that is not diverse is bad for all of the members of that class. And for the patients that they'll be taking care of in the future. Yeah. I learned more about taking care of Puerto Rican patients from my Puerto Rican roommate in New York City in med school than from anybody else. And you, you think about that, and this is, this is who I am, who I grew up around, and yet the places I learned was from my colleagues. And the same is true for Black students, for, for Black patients. Right, right. All right, and so that's what we need to provide for our students. Yep. They'll learn more from each other than we can ever teach them. That's why we have to, to figure out who the each others are. And I, and I think, I, I really do feel like Dr. Chan and his team have do, done a great job. And I think they've recognized that there's a ton more that has to happen. For sure. We're ready to work together. And that gives me hope. As always, please visit our website to find information on obtaining CME credit for listening to the podcast, as well as to find pertinent journal articles on the topics discussed. Thanks.